Happy Friday and thank you for joining me today. In 1974, a 23-year-old black man named William Horton uh, was involved in a major crime in the state of Massachusetts. He assisted in robbery and the fatal shooting of a 17-year-old gas station employee named Joseph Foreigner. Uh, Horton later denied killing Joseph, that 17-year-old gas station employee, but he, along with his other two accomplices, they were convicted for first-degree murder. Ultimately, William Horton was sentenced to life in prison, and as time went by, he was approved for something called the Prisons Furlough Program. According to its policy, if you promise good citizenship, in this case, Horton could take occasional trips to go shopping, attend church, or spend time with his daughter. And at the time, it was normal for federal and state prisoners to be granted the right to do this. One of the major factors was good behavior in prison. According to History.com, criminologists and correction officers approved this furlough system because it was, quote, believed to ease tensions in the prisons. So while serving life or lengthy prison sentences, you could still maintain a normal life and also some sanity. In 1974, the New York Times uh, reported that there was, quote, a growing confidence that officials have in the furlough program, which they say has a high rate or of success. While a large proportion of the prisoners did not violate the furlough's terms and returned, in June of 1986, William Horton violated the terms and he did not go back either. Reportedly, he was driving his nephew's car uh, without a license and when he was pulled over, he did not surrender to law enforcement. Instead, he decided to crash that car and escape. Um, all the way running up to Florida and uh, after that to Baltimore, Maryland. The following year, he was finally caught and arrested, but convicted of another crime. He broke into the home of a Maryland couple, reportedly beating the male and raping his girlfriend, in addition committing burglary. Uh, this is uh, from History.com, quote, To many who heard about Horton's case on the news, his story was an example of how Massachusetts hadn't been tough enough on its prison population. Why was a convicted murderer on the streets to begin with? End quote. And the governor of the state of Massachusetts at that time, during this critical time in the state of Massachusetts, as they're grappling with this William Horton person, the governor of Massachusetts was a Democrat named Michael Dukakis. And that same year, Michael Dukakis was not just the governor of the state of Massachusetts. He was also a candidate for president of the United States. And that question, the question of why William Horton was on the streets to begin with, including the death penalty more broadly, haunted his presidential campaign that same year. In a televised debate, Al Gore, um, looking to seize his political moment and maybe capture the Democratic nomination for himself, um, just straight up asked Dukakis about the Horton situation. In the end, that didn't work out for Gore, because, but certainly um, it caught the Republican eyes. Uh, Dukakis ended up did getting the nomination. And the Republican Party, they just, they focused on that. They focused on that as a central issue for their campaign. Lee Atwater, the manager of Bush's campaign, said, quote, By the time we're finished, they're going to wonder whether Willie Horton is a Dukakis, is Dukakis's running mate, end quote. And so September 1988, two months before the presidential election, the Republican Party released an ad of William Horton in a mugshot 
hounding him for his crimes and asking why Dukakis was so soft on crime, why he didn't support the death penalty, and just imagine who would be on the streets if he was elected president. History.com writes, quote, It was designed to expose Dukakis's policies on crime as weak, taking advantage of an issue that historically drove Republican votes. But it also used photos of Horton, including his mugshot, to panic prospective voters about black men and crime. If black prisoners were allowed out of prison, the ad implied they would commit crimes as heinous as Hortons in white communities, end quote. Here's that ad. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. Quote, weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. Uh, that nearly 30-second ad there, um, just hounding Dukakis on for his stance on the death penalty and also for his stance on crime in the state of Massachusetts as governor. That became known as the 1988 Willie Horton ad released by the Republican Party. The following month at a presidential debate, the first question asked was directed to Michael Dukakis, and it was about the death penalty. The first question goes to Governor Dukakis. You have two minutes to respond. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during all of my life. Uh, I don't see any evidence that it's a deterrent, and I think there are better and more effective ways to deal with violent crime. We've done so in my own state, and it's one of the reasons why we have uh, had the biggest drop in crime of any industrial state in America, why we have the lowest murder rate of any industrial state in America. That answer, that moment at the 1988 presidential debate is what many political experts say was the premature death of the Michael Dukakis presidential campaign. That is when they say that George H.W. Bush had the presidency in his back pocket. And that's hard to refute because in the general election, George Bush had won more than 48 million popular votes. His opponent, Michael Dukakis, only got more than 41 million popular votes. And the Electoral College just made it clear. It just wiped the floor. For Bush, he swept the nation, earning a whopping 426 electoral votes. Dukakis only got 111. So yeah, a big electoral blowout. And the map was almost entirely red. Tally Mindelberg wrote in the race card campaign strategy implicit messages in the norm of equality, quote, more than likely the Bush campaign used the racial facts of the case intentionally, though subtly as part of the overall strategy to recruit right voters without drawing their racist label, end quote. To many, that ad, that Willie Horton ad in 1988 during the presidential campaign released by the Republican Party, supported by the Bush campaign, although they did deny it, um, it even if it was small. To many, it did seem racist. It played a huge role, even if it was small, it played a huge role in the 1988 presidential election. And that racist 1988 ad is what sort of opened up the door to a plethora of racial politics, of racial political attack ads. A whole new era of dirty politics that over the years has gotten filthier, but more clever as well. 
In the 1970s and the early 1980s, a professor at the University of Washington Law School named Derek Bell uh, first wrote about something that would eventually become known as CRT, critical race theory. Essentially, this theory that many civil rights uh, error actions are being stopped in reverse and drawn back. Um, the authentic history of oppressed races is not being taught in schools, being covered up, being half taught, or just taught in a more positive environment. Recently, Republicans have took that and ran with it as if it were as if this were like terrible. We can't have this in our schools. Parents should demand to know what their kids are learning. This week, oh, actually last week, Virginia held their elections for governor, and guess who won? Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin. It was him for uh, him versus uh, former Democratic Governor Terry Mc, Terry McAuliffe. Um, going head-to-head -head in that race. And there were many factors that played into the ultimate result, but many people have been drawing from this particular moment at the gubernatorial debate when both candidates were essentially asked if parents uh, should have a role in deciding what their kids learn. And I agree with your conclusion, Terry, that we should let local school districts actually make these decisions. But we must ask them to include concepts of safety and privacy and respect in the discussion, and we must demand that they include parents in this dialogue. What we've seen over the course of the last 20 months is our school systems refusing to engage with parents. In fact, in Fairfax County this past week, we watched parents so upset because there was such explicit, sexually explicit material in the library they had never seen. It was shocking. And in fact, you vetoed the bill that would have informed parents that they were there. You believe school systems should tell children what to do. I believe parents should be in charge of their okay. kids' education. Mr. McCullough, 30 seconds. So first of all, this shows how clueless Glenn Youngkin is. He doesn't understand what the laws were because he's never been involved here in helping Virginia. But it was not. It, the parents had to write the veto bills, veto books, Glenn, not to be knowledge about it also take them off the shelves. And I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually you take books out and make their own decisions. You vetoed it. So, yeah, I stopped the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. But, you know, not I get really tired of everybody running. Quote, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach, end quote. Republican Glenn Youngkin took that moment and turned it into a political attack ad, only including that specific line um, by the Democrat in the race, Terry McAuliffe. Uh, that became a central part of Youngkin's campaign and it also played a major role in the election. Uh, Stephen Farnsworth, the director of the Center for Leadership and Media at Mary Washington University, said, quote, critical race theory is a 21st century version of Republicans' Willie Horton an appeal, not necessarily as explicit, but not less effective, end quote. So this is a new era of racial dog whistle politics that is proving to be effective. If you just search up critical race theory right now, it is a major focus for Republicans. On the other hand, Terry McAuliffe focused on telling Virginians to not elect the candidate endorsed by President Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump. On that point, weeks before the election, there was an event held for the Republican in this race. And during that event, a flag that was flown at the Capitol on January 6th during that insurrection was used to pledge allegiance to it was very weird and Glenn Youngkin did not attend that event and while getting Trump's endorsement he tried to maintain a distance throughout the campaign and as I said there were many other factors as well like what happened on Capitol Hill with Democrats lengthy negotiations on infrastructure by the way we're gonna have more reporting on that coming up uh, later in the show 
with Democrats um, finally being able to pass a bipartisan infrastructure bill. But in the end, for the Democrats, the anti-Trump message did not work. It appears that Republicans, well, at least Glenn Youngkin in this case, have found a new successful post-Trump message in order to win elections, and that is running on critical race theory. Recently in the news, it was reported that Glenn Youngkin's 17-year-old son tried to vote twice for his own father. According to the Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, the uh, 18th Amendment, the 26th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, you must be 18 years older, 18 years or older to vote, but Fairfax County election officials are confirming that Youngkin's son tried to vote anyway. Uh, this is reporting from the Washington Post, quote, the 17-year-old son of Virginia Governor-elect Glenn Youngkin, a Republican, tried to vote tied to cast a ballot in Tuesday's gubernatorial election twice despite being too young to vote, Fairfax County officials said in a statement released Friday. The statement, which identified the teen as Youngkin's 17-year-old son, emphasized that he did not end up voting and stated that he did not violate any state election laws. The Washington Post is not publishing the teen's first name because he is a juvenile and has not been charged with a crime. The teen walked into the voting precinct into the Great Falls Library on Tuesday presenting his driver's license to election officials. When asked for a proof of identity according to Jennifer Chanty, the precinct captain there, Chanty said in an interview with the Post that she realized who the teen was when she looked at his ID. Upon seeing his age, she said that she informed him that he must be 18 years to be eligible to vote in the state of Virginia. Under Virginia's election laws, the only time 17-year-olds can vote is in a primary election if they'll be 18 years old at the time of the general election. She said she offered to register him to vote for the general for the next election, but the teen declined and walked out. About 20 minutes later, the teen returned, insisting that he be allowed to vote, saying that a friend who was also 17 had been allowed to cast a ballot. Chanty said, I told him, I don't know what occurred with your friend, but you are not registered to vote today. You're welcome to register, but you will not be voting today. Chanty, a Democrat, recalled saying. While Chanty had recalled the events as occurring Tuesday afternoon, a copy of her notes she took at the time showed she recorded the encounters as occurring in the morning. De Devin O'Malley, a spokesman for Yunkin, issued a statement Friday, quote, It's unfortunate that while Glenn attempts to unite the commonwealth around his positive message of better schools, safer streets, a lower cost of living, and more jobs. His political opponents, mad that they suffered historic losses this year, are pitching opposition research on a 17-year-old kid who honestly misunderstood Virginia election law and simply asked polling officials if he was eligible to vote. When informed he was not, he went to school. End quote. When Governor-elect Youngkin takes office in January, the governorship and state house will be controlled by Republicans, uh, but the Senate will be held by Democrats in a narrow majority. Um, when there is a Democrat in the White House, a Republican gets elected governor of Virginia, and then when there is a Republican president, a Democrat gets elected governor of Virginia. So it sort of has this, uh, this vice versa effect. And that's sort of how electoral politics has been going in the state of Virginia. That has been true since 1976, and that same trend happens in New Jersey all the time as well. Right after a presidential election, there are always uh, consecutive elections held in the state of New Jersey and as well as in Virginia for the governorship as well as their local elections as well. But earlier this week, earlier last week, incumbent Democratic Governor Phil Murphy, he defied those odds, effectively halting this historic trend in narrowly winning. The race was super close, less than two points off, and the Republican uh, would have won or there would, excuse me, the Republican would have won 
or there would have been a recount. That's how close it was. Uh, Despite Governor Murphy's victory, his Republican opponent, Jack Citarelli, initially did not concede, telling supporters last Friday in a Twitter video, quote, no one should be declaring victory or conceding the election until every legal vote is counted. I don't want people falling victim to wild conspiracy theories or online rumors. While consideration is paid to any and all credible reports, please don't believe everything you read or see online. I promise you, whatever the outcome, the election result will be legal and fair. That's what he said last week, but today, 10 days later, Mr. Cillarelli uh, conceded in this race. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Following election day, as vote by mail and provisional ballots were counted, I would speak with Mark Daly and ask him a single, very simple question. Can I win the election? And if I cannot, should there be a recount? Late yesterday was the first time, based on vote counts to date, that Mark Sheridan answered no, while also saying we would continue to closely monitor the vote counts. And so, I called Governor Murphy earlier today and congratulated him on his re-election and wished him well in serving the people of New Jersey. To those who are disappointed that I'm conceding, to those whose faith in our election system is shaken, to those who are angry that I'm not asking for a recount today. Let me say this. I've worked every day and night for 22 months to become New Jersey's governor. If you think I'd be standing here today conceding if I thought I won this election, you couldn't be more wrong. I hate to lose. Ask Mayor DeSico. But I'm also someone who believes strongly in our republic and our democratic processes. Enough votes have been counted. There does not appear to be a path to victory or the basis for a recount. Nor do we know of any systemic or widespread fraud. So no, I see no proof that this election was stolen. And the people of New Jersey don't like BS. So why not just tell people what you're going to do? So why don't you ask me again? That is exactly my plan. I'll be running for governor. There you have it, the Republican in this race, um, noun, uh, Jack Citarelli, um, essentially conceding in that speech there, also saying that, yes, he is going to run for governor again in four years uh, for the governor of the state of New Jersey. Um, you know, it's it's sort of a disheartening thing to say, but um, we now have to look for concessions in democracies. We now have to look for concessions specifically in the United States, given what happened last year. There is no concession in the 2020 presidential election last week, one year ago. The presidential elections were held. Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, the incumbent president of the United States versus the former vice president of the United States, who is the Democratic presidential candidate. And it was just a powerful, powerful dynamic shift when you do not concede in a presidential election or an election and you say that there was mass voter fraud. That that dangerous rhetoric is what radicalizes people. That dangerous rhetoric is ultimately what led to the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. We are turning from that, uh, but it is a very, very slow turning point. Not the entire Republican Party is on board in that turn. 
Despite the losses and victories, election night was also historical. Virginians elected their first female lieutenant governor, a black woman named Winsome Sears, and Ohio Democratic candidate Chantel Brown absolutely shellacked her opponent, winning House District Seat 11. In Minneapolis, Minnesota, after an international racial reckoning last year sparked by the death of George Floyd, voters decided to not replace their police department with a Department of Police Safety. Um after many calls for it to, quote, defund the police. In Boston, Massachusetts, earlier this year, their mayor, Marty Walsh, went to D.C. to be the president's labor secretary, so he was replaced by a black woman named Kim Janey. She was acting mayor and will be until November 16th, because that's when Michelle Wu will take office. Miss Wu is the first Asian-American and woman to be elected mayor of Boston in the city's nearly 200-year history. Her former teachers and staff members told the Daily Herald out of Chicago, quote, that city is in great hands. In Pittsburgh, excuse me, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, they elected their first uh, black mayor. Ed Ganey winning a victory there. Cincinnati elected its first Asian American mayor, a 39-year-old lawyer named um, Aftab Purville. 26-year-old black activist Nadarius Clark won the 79th House District in Virginia, becoming the youngest person to ever do so. Detroit's Democratic mayor was just re-elected, and Cleveland voters have just elected a 34-year-old black politician to be their mayor. He'll be Cleveland's youngest mayor in its history. He said in his victory speech, quote, Tonight we celebrate, and tomorrow we are going to roll up our sleeves and do the work to move our city forward in a better direction. End quote. In New York, Alvin Bragg won the district attorney's race, becoming the first black DA in Manhattan. He's a former federal prosecutor and will play a vital role in prosecuting former President Donald Trump and his family for financial crimes. Ongoing investigations in that uh, in that district carried right now and being held um, by the current district attorney, which is Cy Vance. In other states and cities, like here in Texas, voters went to the polls to vote for propositions and school board members. This was a very busy, busy week in the news, and so was last week's. More to come tonight. Stay with us. Introducing Tide Power Pods. With Cat and Nat. I love how much I can stuff into these machines. But that is such a large load. Don't the stains sneak through? Please. New Tide Power Pods can clean that whole situation. You just toss it in before the close. It's like two regular Tide Pods and then some power and then even more power. With 50% more cleaning power, even your large load got clean. How many kids do you have? Girl, I lost track. There's a lot of kids. And then there's a husband. And then there's me. That's a lot of clothes. So right now, the United States is dealing with a supply chain problem. And it's not just the United States. This is more so of an international issue. So if you're looking to get some Christmas gifts or get some early shopping done now, probably it's the time because it may not arrive or there may be an extreme delay. This was reporting from NBC News three weeks ago trying to explain the supply chain to um, people who maybe still be flummoxed about this issue and also providing some further reporting on the issue um, right after President Joe Biden announced that uh, we were speeding up the ports in L.A. More than a week after President Biden announced seaports here in the Los Angeles area would switch to 24-7 operations to speed up the supply chain, other kinks farther along the chain may be preventing that. I got a first-hand look with some of the people who offload the containers when they reach the docks. We're at the port of Long Beach in California. 
The International Longshore and Warehouse Union inviting us for a rare look at an unprecedented supply chain crisis through their eyes. What you're seeing out there is a problem of the supply chain being stretched at, at, at its fullest point. 40% of U.S. imports come through this port and the neighboring port of Los Angeles. Much of it stuck for weeks in a giant backup at sea. 81 massive ships currently in line waiting to unload. We were there to see one of the ships that had docked. It's going to take 10 days to offload the 6,200 containers on this ship alone. But the time it takes to get that cargo to its final destination will be determined by other potential choke points in the supply chain. President Biden recently touted 24-7 operations here as a way to ease the backlog. Today's announcement has the potential to be a game changer. But so far, workers say not much has changed. Frank Ponce de Leon has been a crane operator for 25 years, telling us dock workers who have been on the job throughout the pandemic stand ready to move cargo around the clock. But they've been given few orders to do so. Since they announced 24-7, have your workers' lives changed appreciably? Uh, no, they have not. He says there's no shortage of workers at the local dispatch hall. Union leaders stressing dock workers are available 24-7, but it's not up to them when they're called to work. Is it frustrating to you that so much attention on the supply chain is coming here on the ports? Yes, it is. This is not uh, L.A. Long Beach problem. This is greater than that. Other parts in the supply chain need to, uh, to be in tune with working 24-7. The next link, trains and trucks, moving all those goods out of the port. Drivers like Josue Alvarez, who says sometimes he waits all day for a single container. Six to eight hours a day, waiting in line, sitting in line. There's also a shortage of equipment for moving containers. And storage warehouses are so full, some drivers are parking them on city streets. This is my driveway, and we're getting blocked, as you can see. Clogging up residential neighborhoods near the ports. Have a great day. Thank you. Nationwide, the supply chain crisis has led to empty store shelves and soaring prices, and it's likely to get even worse. With a record shortage of truckers, the trucking industry is down 80,000 drivers. Would you call this an emergency? Well, it's certainly getting to a crisis level. Derek Leathers is the CEO of Warner Enterprises, one of the largest trucking companies delivering goods across North America. He told us solving this growing crisis will not be easy. So the ports is where it starts. It's the most visible piece. But the problem is a lot more complicated than that. Um, it's, it's a combination of rail speeds, truck availability, warehouse space, and ports, all of which are being stressed to their absolute capacity right now. And there is no let up in consumer demand for imported products. Once again, that was reporting from NBC News there. NBC News host Lester Holt reporting on the United States uh, supply chain shortage as well as this international issue that we are currently grappling with worldwide. Um, I did tell you guys a story um, about um, how on Valentine's Day this year, uh, my grandmother had mailed something here to my family here in Texas. And we still have not received that. I'm sure those chocolates and those teddy bears were very, very nice. Um, but that still has not come in the mail. We often joke that it's going to arrive on the next Valentine's Day because it has been a very, very long time. Um, 
actually, this is in relation to the United States Postal Service uh, post office, which um, still is a very, very live issue. As Louis DeJoy, who is still um, in office as the Postmaster General, is now also saying that, yes, Christmas this year, well, when it comes to mailing things and packaging and also shipping things, well, that's not necessarily going to go well as intended. So both supply chain shortage, but also like problems with like mailing things as well. So please, please order soon as possible. Order ASAP. If your children have Christmas lists, make sure they get them to you as soon as possible because soon um, those toys that they really, really want, that Barbie doll, that Ken Barbie doll that they want, um, those may be already off the shelves by the time you go to make your purchase or put it inside your Amazon cart. All right, we got more to come tonight. Stay with us. If you looked at America like a bird, and that was all you knew, would you really understand it with just that point of view? We've got a different way to look at it from right here on the ground. We don't just see United States, we see United Towns. From where we sit, just down the street, near the post office, by the park, when we stop and look around, what we see are sparks. Sparks of hope, of compassion, of communities who stand firm, when neighbors lift each other up, expecting nothing in return. We're grateful for what you bring and all the sparks you've shown and the thousands of towns that we get to call home. So it has been a while um, with the Jeremiah Patterson show here. It's been a while since I've been reporting here. I will acknowledge that reporting here on this show has gone on and off and on and off. I report and then I come back two weeks later or a month later to do new reporting. Um, and I will say that trend is going to now officially stop. I promise you that trend will stop. New episodes will be published this weekend. Around three to four episodes will be published this weekend. Um, because I'd like to continue reporting on the news. Um, I'd like to continue reporting on the news in a timely manner, in a timely fashion. I'd also like to update you on a segment called The Last Note, a segment that we've done here on this show for, I think, about three years. Uh, we're now going to be removing that segment, and I'm going to be changing it to um, actually called We Need to Talk. So I'm going to be taking the last note away. That new segment is going to be called We Need to Talk. Um, essentially, it's going to be about anything related to the news or a underrated story, underreported story. Um, that's not getting lots of attention. Uh, but the Jeremiah Patterson Show is back in full motion. New episodes will be out every Saturday and Sunday. Of course, specials will be out um, uh, throughout the weekdays. But this weekend is going to be an exception to that Saturday and Sunday rule because more new episodes will continuously be posted um, as there's lots and lots of news to get to. All right. Thank you very much for listening to this very special episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show on the 2021 elections. All right, we've got more to come in the days ahead. Have a great day. Remember to stay positive and inspired. And as always, take care.